Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 67. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's special episode, we're going to be taking a close look at the recent cyber attack that has affected MGM Resorts and Caesars Entertainment in Las Vegas. Welcome to a special episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. Today, we're going to be taking a closer look at the large cybersecurity incident unfolding in Las Vegas. And of course, I'm talking about the attack that affected MGM Resorts, Caesars Entertainment, and three other companies in the manufacturing, retail, and technology space. I'm recording this podcast on September 21st, 2023, and my knowledge is representative of what I've learned thus far. However, I suspect that this breach will be a case study for years to come, and our knowledge will certainly change as we learn more. The goal here is to spread security awareness with the hopes that others might avoid a similar situation in the future. I also want to give a shout out and thank you to all the defenders, responders, IT folks, and staff of the affected organizations. I hope your lives are back to normal soon, if not already. And to help me tell the tale and unwind some of the technical details, I'm joined today by the one and only Matt Bromley. Thanks for being here today, Matt. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. And I'm looking forward to this special edition episode that we've got for uh, some folks deviating a little bit from our normal Intel updates, but uh, looking forward to walking through this one. I'm sure everyone listening has some awareness of what has been going down in Las Vegas, but to make sure we don't miss anything, we're going to run through the timeline. As mentioned, MGM Resorts, Caesars Entertainment, and three other companies in the manufacturing, retail, and technology space were recently breached, causing the loss of customer data and disrupting operations. The attack apparently took place on September 10th, 2023, and was first made public the next day, September 11th, when MGM Resorts tweeted out the following. We are aware of a recent cybersecurity incident that has affected some of our systems. We are working with law enforcement and cybersecurity experts to investigate the incident and to protect our customers' data. We apologize for any inconvenience this may cause. Let's elaborate on this tweet now that we know more details. First, that's a bit of an understatement. At the time of that tweet, their operations were disrupted across the United States, including many of the most popular casinos and hotels in Las Vegas. There were countless examples on various social media outlets, it seemed like all departments were absolutely paralyzed. I saw a video of a huge lineup at the Bellagio as people tried to check in. All the slot machines on the floor of the MGM were out of service. People needed to be escorted to the rooms because their key cards were non-functioning. Restaurant reservations were either cancelled or resorted to pen and paper methods. And their website, email, and even the rewards app was down. This attack got absolutely everything. Did any of the chaos you witnessed stand out for you, Matt? Yeah, I think, uh, Chris, you you hit on some of the key points, which was really the fact that it was just almost impossible for folks to get into their rooms, restaurant reservations, everything was brought down. I saw videos as well of just like hundreds of people lined up. And I mean, I've been to busy Vegas before and I've seen the really long check in lines, but this was like just something else out of, you know, nightmares when it comes to kind of vacationing in Vegas. Uh, I think the other really big one is is uh, from a chaos perspective. You never really realize, and if anyone here hasn't ever kind of been to a conference or spent some time in Vegas, you never realize just how many restaurants are inside of one hotel or one casino. Um, so it's not just kind of a one for one or a one for five. This is like a one for thirty multiple when when these systems go down. So it's just it it quickly extrapolates into some really high levels of chaos there. If uh, you know if the if the wrong systems are brought down. Yeah, and that lobby of the Bellagio, I saw they were handing out free alcohol and food just to try and keep people placated as they waited hours to get into their hotel room. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think anything you can do to keep the guests happy. And, and, and I mean, the other thing that I've read too is that other casinos in the area were like, Hey, we're safe. Come on over here. We'll match <laughs> what you've got over there. And, uh, you know, it was an opportunity for some, but, uh, m- more importantly, it, it was a bit of a devastating moment for, you know, the MGM, uh, brands. Yeah. Horrible situation all around. Uh, apparently MGM suffered from a total disruption for about 36 hours before bringing systems back online. However, many systems remained offline for days and some of them still are. Slot machines were still offline at least eight days later. I checked their website last night on September 20th, 2023, and their online reservation system was still down. As of this recording, MGM Resorts is saying that all customer-facing operations are quote-unquote back to normal. Last night, I also saw some unsubstantiated tweets, apparently from an employee, saying that their scheduling, payroll, and other internal systems were still not functioning properly. I can't say whether that is true or not, but it wouldn't surprise me given the scope of the attack. Did you manage to pick up any info on how the recovery is coming along at all? Yeah, so there's an interesting caveat inside of MGM's statement, which is that all customer-facing operations are back to normal, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, maybe 10% of services, depending on, you know, uh, front-end versus back-end, customer-facing versus internal infrastructure and whatnot. Um, I'm not throwing any shade. I, I think that this one's probably going to take a long time to recover from. Um, a long time might be measured in weeks or months. You know, we'll, we'll see case studies of this one for years to come. Uh, I think, though, you know, first off, Chris, you called out at the beginning of the of the episode today. Huge hats off to the folks who are aiding and assisting with that recovery. Uh, I've been in that role before. That is not a fun role. It's a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of not fun meetings to be in. So hats off to the folks who are there kind of carrying that through. Um, however, you know, uh, in cases like this, we've just got to wait and see t- for the company to release kind of those final statements on where they've done and what they've recovered from. You know, these adversaries, and we'll talk about this, I think, a little bit later, but the adversaries got access to multiple points of data. They got insight to systems. They got accounts. They got all kinds of stuff. And this is not, for anyone who may not have been in incident recovery before, this is not just, you know, all right, let's change passwords, reissue some key cards, and we're back on our way. You know, this is uh, data data breach. This is, you know, notification laws. This is SEC requirements. This is regulatory filings, as we've already seen. This is a huge undertaking for a massive corporation. Some of this stuff, just by pure process, takes weeks to unravel, Let no matter how fast the team on the ground works. So I think we'll continue to see this one unfold for a long time. We might have, you know, and, and I usually attribute incident response attacks and, and public attacks to about a 90-10 rule. Over time, you'll learn about 90% of probably what occurred, but 10% of it will, will often be either kept internal or there's no need to disclose it. But the recovery effort um, is often the other way. It's, it's a very long time to get a full recovery laid out. You can do quick little hits here and there. But uh, it's tough to say, hey, you know, we're recovered fully from this thing just a a week or two later. Some analysts have estimated that the company is losing between 4.2 and 8.4 million per day and pegging the total losses from the attack as high as 100 million. I did read somewhere that MGM had a cyber insurance clause that's worth 200 million. So hopefully they'll be able to come back bigger and stronger. MGM hasn't made any public statements about their losses, but their stock price dipped approximately 6% in the days that followed the announcement, which represents a capitalization loss of $1.4 billion. That is with a B. During the coverage of this incident, it turns out another was hiding in the shadows. On September 14, 2023, we learned that Caesars Entertainment, also with multiple properties in Las Vegas and other cities, was breached on September 7, 2023. 
The knowledge of this breach became public only when they filed an 8K form with the United States SEC. In that filing, the company said that they fell victim to a social engineering attack on its IT support vendor. The form states, we have taken steps to ensure that the stolen data is deleted by the unauthorized actor, although we cannot guarantee this result. The Wall Street Journal report claims that the casino chain allegedly paid a $15 million ransom to the threat actor, half of the $30 million that was initially demanded. To date, MGM has chosen not to engage with the cybercriminals and made no mention of the ransom. Both organizations suffered varying levels of data exfiltration. And as I mentioned in the opening, there were several other companies local to the area that were victims of this wave of attack, but were not named and have chosen to stay silent. I think that covers the basics of the fallout. Did I miss anything, Matt? No, I think uh, first off to mention that, you know, uh, interestingly enough, Caesars Entertainment also fell victim to this is is actually pretty par for the course for these types of adversaries. Uh, once you've got one system figured out, you can kind of wash, rinse and repeat that against multiple other organizations. And, and we've we've definitely seen that happen before. Um, but I think from a kind of financial fallout perspective, at least in the short term, I, th- I think you've got it all covered there. Um, interestingly, I, I'm not one to usually tie stock price to data breaches in the long term. Uh, I use some of the most public breaches out there as as examples that stock prices, you know, it's a short term hit, but uh, we'll see how the you know how the how the market weathers these types of breaches as time goes on. Um, I think interestingly enough, one of the things that you brought up here, Chris, is that we learned about Caesars from an 8K filing with the SEC, and I think that is perhaps one of the other things to note here. Is that the, you know there's recently been some changes and revamps in how and what organizations have to file an event of a data breach, and this is just one example of, you know, where the, the, these are now news sources that we've got to pay attention to and watch out for. They've kind of always been there, but now there's a little bit more emphasis on ways that an organization can potentially report an IT incident, a security incident, a data breach of some sort, however we want to classify it. Um, but, you know, it doesn't always have to be a, a, a public tweet or a press release. Um, there's other ways for them to, to kind of make that happen and work on systems in the back end. But other than that, you know, it's, again, one of those things, I, I think one of the most interesting kind of studies or discussions that I've seen on social media has been an estimate of just how much money they've lost. Um, and, you know, the losses stem from kind of their daily revenue pulls. And I think what folks are extrapolating out is, well, they usually make, you know, X million per day and they've been down for 10 days. So 10 times X is what they've lost and stuff like that. Um, and and I'd, I'd go as far as to argue that, you know, even though I've read some reports that it, you know, it feels like a ghost town in some of these places are the exact words being used and whatnot. Um, I, I'd, I'd go and I'd, I'd argue a little bit and say, you know, it's not like the places are vacated and no one's there and it's just an empty, giant, massive casino. You know, let's remember for those of you who have been to Vegas, these are massive machines, these casinos that have to keep running. And even though restaurants resorted to pen and paper to, you know, take orders and get reservations done, fire still cooks food, right? Um, and that doesn't require a computer necessarily all the time to work. So I'd say that, you know, again, this is a little bit more of that kind of, there's still folks at those organizations who are still trying to make things happen. And I still think trying to do their jobs and whatnot. Um, so this is another one where I'd say we're going to wait for the financial reporting to get a true idea of maybe just how much this breach has cost in the long run. And any extrapolation is just that it's an extrapolation based on some arbitrary figures. But Chris, I think this is just another little bullet point. It's going to take some time for us to, to wait and see what comes out of it. 
It's interesting with the SEC filing. I think they have about four days to report an incident after it happened. It's not long. That's yeah. for sure. It's it's very quick. So you've got to like you got to move fast on breaches these days. And I did see the stock is almost back to its original level, down only a couple percent from before the attack or left a boom, as they say. Um, I'm thinking maybe we can start a fund that goes in and invests after these things. <laughs> I will say, uh, you know, one of the classic examples I use, and it's it's very old now. Still an example that works, but it's a very old one. Uh, I remember when the Target, um, the Target stores breach happened so many years ago. There, there were folks on you know Twitter. It was Twitter back then. There were folks on Twitter who were claiming the company's ruined, stock prices down, blah blah. And I believe less than six months later, it had rallied back to twenty percent higher than its price at the time of the breach announcement and things like that. So I never really tend to use stock prices as any sort of you know barometer, um, especially in cases like this where the organization was not completely brought to its knees. It wasn't, you know, completely wiped out. It's not like we saw fires burn casinos down or anything like that. You know, uh, let's be clear, the, the the gambling and slot machines stopped running for a period of time, but it's not indefinite. So there's, there's certainly recovery to be done there. Yeah, they're going to come back better, stronger, and more prepared for this kind of thing in the future. So that's right. That's right. And and hey, let's add on as well. I believe while we're in the information security slash cybersecurity space, I believe there's still a conference that took place there this week in the cybersecurity space. So, you know, the other thing to add to this is it's not like folks are going to start going somewhere else with all their massive conferences. They're still going to be back there. So the machine will keep running. This is, you know, and I'm maybe giving some friendly uh, you know, industry experience here to the folks who are going through this right now, uh, this, especially those of you on the ground having to pour through forensic evidence and whatnot, you'll make it through and don't worry, it'll be a fantastic accolade to have on your resume uh, if you can even talk about it. But at the end of the day, I, I think, you know, we'll see a hack like this. Hopefully, Chris, as you mentioned, uh, raise awareness and set the stage for others not to fall into these traps into the future. And as much as I really don't like the fact that this is what it takes, Sometimes there is no better experience than experience. And, you know, watching an organization lose tens of millions of dollars due to, you know, a social engineering incident or something like that is a real wake up call for the right organization out there. And someone out there picked up the phone the moment this was disclosed and started implementing preventative measures or mitigations that they probably should have done six to eight months ago. And in that case, Hey, I don't want to call it a win, but I will say there's some positive influence to be got from this. Yeah, so the attack is attributed to a ransomware group known as Scattered Spider, also known as Octopus, Unc3944, Scatterswine, and Muddled Libra. Going forward in this podcast, I'm going to stick with calling them Scattered Spider, but I do find it fascinating how the different research groups come up with the different names. Yeah, this is an interesting one. Uh, I, I'm not sure. We may have talked about this before on this podcast, how these different names come up. In case anyone's curious, I, I believe Scattered Spider is their CrowdStrike name. CrowdStrike will typically add Spider to the end of financially motivated groups. Um, Unc3944 or Uncategorized3944 is the Mandiant name. And really, hopefully everyone's picking up that these these are vendor-driven names that often kind of you know give these these different points to it and things like that. You know, it's uh, it's it's an interesting way that teams go about naming these. Uh, Chris, we could probably spend an entire episode walking through the way that different organizations name their threat actors and what those names mean and everything like that. But we'll just simply say, you know, for those of you out there who are trying to follow the dot and connect the dots and whatnot, use them interchangeably. 
in your research, you know, whoever named them muddled Libra is going to stick to that name because that's the one that they picked. Whoever named them scatter swine is going to stick to that name because that's the, what, they, what they've picked. But as you're going through and looking at research, just use them interchangeably in, in your head. Uh, we'll drop a link in the show notes here, but there is a really good resource out there. I think it's a public Google sheet, but there's a Google sheet that actually maps these different threat actors from vendor to vendor. And Chris, that's something that we'll I'll, I'll give you and we'll share out with everyone just to kind of help kind of correlate these. I'm very cool. It's too bad those aren't their self-proclaimed names. You know, when I was five years old, I wanted to be called Snake Eyes because I like G.I. Joe and <laughs> it'd be more interesting to see what they come up with. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's an interesting take when um, you've got the, you know, the kind of names that we use for different groups originating from vendors. And I have often always wondered how that kind of translates back, you know, to the threat actors themselves. I mean, I'm assuming they know, but I, I've kind of wondered, you know, we've mentioned on this podcast many times that we are still dealing with humans. And I wonder if there is like a milestone. You know, for you, you, you start out as a loose collective of hackers, and then the next thing you know, you're given a name from CrowdStrike. And I wonder if that's like a milestone that results in everybody, you know, getting a Lamborghini or throwing a champagne party or something like that. Going to get um, tattoos. Yeah, you're going to get <laughs> tattoos to commemorate the shared celebration, you know, and you're sitting in this tattoo parlor in whatever part of eastern europe or russia you're in and and i you know everyone's like hey well you know when you guys are getting tattoos are you celebrating a bachelor party no 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 we just got officially recognized by CrowdStrike, right um so you never know it's it's always an interesting uh an interesting play whenever this happens but you know i will just advise all of the researchers and detection engineers and everything out there it's vendors who choose the name they'll write about it in that context there are oftentimes and i know we've looked at this before there's sometimes you get articles that will coordinate the differences between the two. Um, every threat intel team will argue that they've got the attributes that are true to the group versus others. At this point, you know, right now we're trying to mitigate our uh, mitigate our vulnerabilities and shore up defenses against this group. I'd rather we read the articles and take away the core TTPs as opposed to you know perhaps worried about who the name is or who's coming after us. Yeah. All right, so uh, Scattered Spider is an affiliate of the Black Cat ransomware group that deploys their alpha malware during attacks. It is believed to have been founded in May 2022. The group initially focused on attacks against telecommunication firms, but has since expanded its targets to include a variety of industries, including hospitality, retail, technology, healthcare, and financial services, casinos also being part of that list. We've talked a lot about Black Cat and Alfie on the podcast over the last year. Do you have anything to add on how these affiliate structures are set up, Matt? How do these folks find each other and get to work doing these bad things in the world? Yeah, we've covered this uh, extensively, and it's always good to revisit it, too, when we go over it. Uh, the, the big one here is to understand that a lot of these groups do kind of coexist in the same type of forums and everything. And, you know, one thing I've mentioned on on this podcast, especially, is that we're not dealing with I don't know if anyone else gets this, but when you often think about these types of groups, uh, there's there's often this assumption that it's like a, a really, you know, d the corner of like a dark CD bar or, or like a basement somewhere or something like that. Um, you know, they get together and meet over coffee, just like two people would get together and discuss, you know, playing a game later that day or something like that. I mean, some of this happens and, and you just, I think very much like the information security community 
learns and meets and gets networks over time and things like that. They develop the exact same thing in the, you know, the black hat community, if you will. Where this is interesting from this group in particular, and I, I think you, you might have these details as well, is that this is, I think, referred to it often as a younger group, um, meaning they've got kind of less age experience in the world there. But, you know, it doesn't mean that they're not kind of in tune with the different resources out there, the different forums that you may visit in order to find a service or the, you know, different places that you would go to say, hey, I don't want to write my own ransomware, but I, I do want to kind of resell or I'd love to be a partner with someone and sharing the profits and things like that. And when you're talking about profits measured in the millions, it's it's not too bad to say, hey, I'll split, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent with you because we're both going to walk out of this rich. But that being said, you know, there's lots of places for these folks to get together and network. A lot of them digital for obvious reasons, a lot of them anonymous for obvious reasons. But no reason that, you know, similar to I would go and find uh, somewhere to play, you know, pick up basketball. Someone might find a place to find pick up ransomware and just say, hey, here's what I'm looking to try and do and whatnot. And Chris, we've we've covered a lot of these groups and a lot of the ways that these networks is uh, these networks are set up. And I think this just continues to be a very profitable model for these different groups out there is they can kind of coordinate different pieces of that supply chain. And and I've, I've said these words before. I know you have someone out there who might be really good at writing a piece of ransomware and you've got someone else out there who's really good at social engineering. Why on earth would they learn each other's skills and recognizably be subpar at them? If you know that I need a key piece of something to be successful, just like I would running a company, go and hire the best people, right? I'm going to go try and affiliate with the best people as well. And uh, I'm using best loosely here because it's in the term of ransomware and threat actors. But if again, if, I, if I'm looking to bring together kind of the best of breed skills, I'm going to go after the group that's got the chops to prove it. And I'm going to find a way to partner with them and align up. And a lot of the links between these groups as well is money. It's a really easy link to understand, really easy link to forge. It's also a really easy one to break as well. But let's be clear, right? The the biggest driver here is is money. This is not some sort of Mr. Robot, Dark Army style approach where everyone's working together to bring down the giant machine or anything like that. It's just money that's bringing everyone together here. So in that case, when money is the central topic, it's not hard to find some people willing to go along with your master plan. Yeah, there's also probably not a lot of loyalty once the dominoes start to fall. That's it. Exactly. It's one of those like easy to buy you, easy to sell you kind of things. So in an interesting twist from what we normally see, Scattered Spider is believed to be primarily made up of operative space in the United States and the United Kingdom. And as you mentioned, Matt, the group is also believed to be relatively young with most of its members aged 19 to 22. This group is particularly well known for their social engineering skills, which is how they gained access to MGM computers. Apparently, they looked up an employee of MGM on LinkedIn and impersonated them in a 10-minute call to the help desk. The threat actors appeared to have either obtained passwords to privileged user accounts or manipulated authentication flows in the victim's active directory. It's worth noting that the help desk was operated by a third party. The attackers then called the IT service desk and requested a reset of MFA factors of Okta super administrator accounts. And for anybody listening that may not be familiar, Okta is an identity provider that allows for users to have a single sign-in across many different systems. Once that was achieved, the threat actors accessed the administrator accounts with anonymized proxy services and used them to reset authenticators and assign higher privileges for other accounts. 
humans are the weakest link in an organization. There's possibly some process stuff that could have helped here, but assuming we could go back in time and write detections, is there anything that could have been set up here to get an alert to know something was starting to go sideways and, and would it have mattered at that point? Yeah, this is the the tough part about this breach. And I, I think it's a, a really, really tough kind of realization when the threat group that came after you and is really like, you know, causing such a hemorrhage in cash and a hemorrhage in operations comes out and was like, yeah, I was able to do it in 10 minutes. You know, it's definitely a bucket of salt in the, in the much open wound there as well. You know, Chris, I think first off, there's 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 a rush by a certain subset of folks out here to blame the users and, and put the onus here on the person that fell victim to this attack. And I'm one of the first ones to say we don't want to blame the users. There's an individual out there who already feels horrible about what they did and whatnot. And unfortunately, you know, what's done is done and it's time to just kind of move on and shore up our defenses and whatnot. However, that being said, you know, I, I, I think without knowing the exact conversation that took place, you know, we have to consider the fact that this group is publicly well known to be very good at social engineering and very good at what they did, um, building a fake LinkedIn profile, knowing the right terminology, knowing the words to use. I mean, at some point in time, anyone in the world here could fall victim to this type of thing. And let's be clear, the person on the phone, they weren't asking for, you know, hey, I need the, I need the domain admin password to issue all keys. Like, you know, it, it was one of those like, hey, I'm calling for general IT support stuff. They know the lingo. It was, it was definitely one of those things where it's not hard to imagine that someone who is not a cybersecurity professional fell victim to a professional cybersecurity adversary, right? We, we have to use those adjectives very carefully so that way we can help paint the picture of, in some cases, it is David against Goliath and David does not have a slingshot and does not have rocks. And Goliath is a behemoth of an animal who, if they don't win, they're just going to call the next help desk support person until they get through, right? All things are hacked with time and, and persistence. That being said, I think that once the person had gained access or had gained an account in, there's definitely some logic and definitely some detection capabilities that could be written around kind of what that account was doing and whatnot. Uh, I'm a firm believer in, uh, I'm not going to call it UEBA or anything like that, but I will say just general overall behavioral analytics. There was an account doing things that accounts normally shouldn't be doing. You know, um, There's accounts out there, once the adversaries got access to this particular account, they were then kind of jumping around and accessing administrator accounts and resetting authenticators and assigning higher privileges to other things. I mean, these are, you know, things that happen maybe one off with approved change controls and stuff like that. But to be happening in a flurry like this all at one time or within a very short window is is the thing that I would be focused on, you know, is is the kind of takeaway of like, hey, here's the activity we should be looking for. And don't get me wrong. That doesn't defeat the, the phishing side or the social engineering side of it, but it, it puts some safety measures in that first step, that credential harvesting slash credential access slash credential manipulation phase where the adversaries got to like level up accounts in order to make the attack successful. And, and in that case, I think, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But I would argue and say that type of activity in any environment an administrative account going wild in any environment is something you you should at least flag on or at least detect on. And this is looking forward knowledge here. 
if anyone here is, you know, got those types of accounts or is worried about this type of thing, it's an active directory environment. If it's Okta, if it's Duo, if if it's anything with account access attached to it, then definitely wrap some analytics around what those accounts are doing and what they're capable of doing and drop, you know, ingest audit logs, get them into a platform, start to write detections around them, um, start to use those sources of telemetry to help you find things. And, And you'd be surprised what you might come out with from there. And I think that's a a valuable place to start on on ways to find efficiencies here, Chris. I also read the threat actors used uh, quote unquote novel methods of lateral movement and defense evasion, but could not find any details on those. Uh, they did configure a second identity provider that they controlled, which served as a impersonation app that granted other users single sign on access to the victim's organization applications. Uh, what is the purpose of the second identity provider here, Matt? Is this in anticipation of the original auth provider getting shut down? Yeah, so a lot of times, uh, so there's there's really two avenues to this. Uh, the first is that sometimes adversaries will set up a secondary measure in order to kind of maintain persistent access into an environment. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be I'll be clear on this one, Chris. This, this, these are some details that I remember like hearing and reading about, but I didn't dive into this one too deep. But I will say, a lot of times it is associated with um, kind of needing to have a secondary method to get into an environment just in case, as you mentioned, the first one does get shut down, right? And that is, that, that's maybe kind of the first thing to be aware of. Uh, the other one is that sometimes you will see, uh, let me see here, I'm reading through a couple of uh, notes here that I took. Um, another way is, or another thing that they might have done this for is that I believe that they did need to bypass MFA or, or, or you know, one-time password tokens here. Um, so it might have been necessary for them to have actually compromised a secondary identity provider just to get access to those uh, one-time, to- one-time passwords or those TOTPs, time-based one-time passwords. Um, and it's possible that they may have needed access to both in order to maintain persistence from that MFA perspective, right? Um, I will say in this case, and I'm trying to just read through some notes that I've taken here, but in one case it was, it was mentioned out that, you know, uh, even though MFA was in place, it is not impenetrable and compromising that second identity provider might've been the first step in either resetting or sometimes uh, disabling MFA or rerouting where it goes to. So if you think, you know, sometimes MFA is done via a phone call, sometimes it's a QR code that we scan and then we get pins pushed to our phone or something like that. A lot of times they'll need to go after that secondary measure just to make sure that they maintain that access or to subvert a stronger authentication mechanism. Definitely some advanced attack methods. I was just reading through a note, Chris, uh, one thing that I did note here. So as you mentioned, uh, and I'm quoting here from Okta, the threat actor was observed configuring a second identity provider to act as an impersonation app. I believe you would say to this, the second identity provider also controlled by the attacker would act as a source identity provider in an inbound federation relationship, sometimes called org to org with the target. So another way to kind of guarantee access, maintain persistence and ensure that they were able to get around any other preventative measures that might've been in place. So yeah, in this case, the attacker sets up their own identity preventer with, oh, sorry, identity provider with users mapped to the victim Okta users, and then sets up their organization as a provider to the victim Okta instance, and then allows them to maintain access. So really, really advanced technique here from a kind of commonplace perspective. 
but is one that would have allowed for guaranteed access and maintained it. To describe what happened next, I'm going to read part of a statement that is allegedly from the threat actors responsible for the attack. As reported, MGM shut down computers inside their network as a response to us. We intended to we intend to set the record straight. No ransomware was deployed prior to the initial takedown of their infrastructure by their internal teams. MGM made the hasty decision to shut down each and every one of their Okta Sync servers after learning that we had been lurking on their Okta agent servers, sniffing passwords of people whose passwords couldn't be cracked from their domain controller hash dumps, resulting in their Okta being completely locked out. Meanwhile, we continued having super administrator privileges to their Okta, along with global administrator privileges to their Azure tenant, They made an attempt to evict us after discovering that we had access to their Okta environment, but things did not go according to plan. On Sunday night, MGM implemented conditional restrictions that barred all access to their Okta environment due to inadequate administrative capabilities and weak incident response playbooks. Their network has been infiltrated since Friday due to their network engineers' lack of understanding of how their network access was problematic on Saturday. They then made the decision to take offline seemingly important components of their infrastructure on Sunday. After waiting a day, we successfully launched ransomware attacks against more than 100 ESXi hypervisors in their environment on September 11th after trying to get in touch but failing. This was after they brought in external firms for assistance in containing the incident. How does that sit with you, Matt? That is a mouthful. Uh, Have you seen threat actors release play-by-plays like this before? Can we trust the depiction of what happened here? Yeah, so this is uh, always a a very interesting stance to be in when a threat actor comes out the gate and declares exactly what they did or what they felt happened. There's a lot of very subtle jabs being taken in this, you know, especially when we read about things like, uh, you know, weak incident response playbooks, network engineers, lack of understanding, so on and so forth. I mean, there's a lot of direct shots at some of the MGM staff here or, or whatever, you know, whoever was in charge of these different elements of the, uh, of the environment here. Um, but, you know, in this case, I, I think when you see the adversary come out and say things like, hey, you know, after waiting time, we launched ransomware against more than 100 ESXi hypervisors. Like those little nuggets in there, um, I find to be kind of from a technical perspective, the interesting side of it. Because it does illustrate that they, you know, they had insight into the environment. Uh, it's probably not hard to determine that MGM was likely running a bunch of virtualized, you know, systems, and ESXi is kind of the hypervisor for those. And the adversaries, and this is something that we see adversaries do, rather than go after the individual systems, just go after the hypervisors, and you get a quick one-to-many relationship if you take that particular system down. And that's what they did in this case, you know. Uh, I, I do find it interesting, the one of the last little lines there, which is what they did after MGM brought in external firms for assistance. Oftentimes, when you see adversaries talk about external firms being brought in, they've likely got insight into those communications and things like that. Uh, this is the, the the tough and very humiliating part about this. And and I, I use that gently. I, I want to say humbling. Humbling is maybe the better verb, but both work in concert here when you realize that an adversary might have been reading your communications or reading your emails. Um, the fact that the adversary called out and talked about, you know, lurking on Okta servers, uh, con- you know, domain controller hash dumps, um, Okta being locked out, super admin privileges to Okta, global admin privileges to Azure tenant. Like they're calling out very specific parts of the infrastructure that the adversary likely had. Um, the sarcastic jabs are just, you know, adversaries being adversaries. 
But when you see plays and pl- plays by plays like this, um, it's it's something that is a little tough for the public to read. But I would venture a guess that the incident responders on the ground probably likely knew about a lot of these different steps. I don't think it was eye-opening for the team on the ground, um, but it is eye-opening publicly when the adversary comes out and just completely demolishes any press release that the uh, you know the casino might have tried to release before the adversaries got ahead of them. Yeah, that statement I was just reading from goes on quite a bit about how the interaction between the threat actors and MGM allegedly went. They take a lot bigger swipes at MGM and the the staff involved there. I didn't want to read through that stuff. I'll link it in the show notes, though, for anybody that wants to go read it. And I think that sums up the bulk of the information I was able to pull together on this. I think it brings forward some very interesting questions. You know, Caesars Entertainment ended up paying a negotiated $15 million out of a $30 million ransom, and their operations seemed to be very minimally disrupted compared to MGM, who took a very different approach. This begs a question. What do you think, Matt? By the numbers, it would seem to me that paying the ransom was a better decision. Does paying these ransoms encourage more groups to take aim? So this is the tough side of any ransomware discussion is do we pay to get back to normal or do we just kind of not pay and take the hit, right? Uh, I can't offer anyone any definitive advice on this one. I, I will never say do not ever pay and I will not ever say yes, always pay. Um, what I will say is it's a business discussion. It's a business risk discussion. And it's one of those things where, hey, look, you know, you're being extorted. You're being held hostage for money. Uh, if paying it gets your business processes back and you can stomach going through that, then that's the business decision that was made. You know, uh, Chris, you're, you're right. And what that does, though, is it does set you up as, as a label, as a paying target, you know, and paying the ransom may get the adversary off your back today. But does it prevent the adversary or another adversary from coming back tomorrow? I think where it gets really tough is paying a ransom may feel like a really quick fix. It may feel like, okay, hey, here's this money, just leave me alone. But it doesn't buy your security and safety in the future. That's the tough thing is it gets, it's a bandaid. It gets rid of the problem right now. It does not prevent, you know, this type of thing happening in the future. But that being said, who's to say that a $15 million ransom payment plus a $10 million infrastructure investment, so a total of 25, is cheaper than paying the original 30, right? Who's to say that maybe the business assessed the risks and the costs associated with every step of the way and said, hey, look, we're going to pay this thing because it's cheaper than us riding this out and, and just having to deal with it. And sometimes, folks, that's really all it comes down to. It comes down to the business an- analysis that says this one, you know, road A is cheaper than road B and we're a multi-billion dollar company and we're going to do what's best for the shareholders. We're choosing the cheaper route. And- Sometimes that's it. Sometimes that's that's how it shakes out. Yes, adversaries know this. They watch for this type of stuff and they will certainly say, all right, here's the position we should take. You know, maybe the last little anecdote I'll drop here is um, ransomware adversaries are becoming, or they have been for years now, very aware of the financial statistics behind their targets. And they use that in their negotiations and discussions. Uh, one of the ones that I refer to quite a bit with folks is there was a ransomware group that targeted a school district in Florida, in the United States. And I believe they made a ransom demand that was very high by ransom standards. And the school district came back and simply was like, are you, are you joking us? Like, we're a school district. We don't have this amount of money to pay you. And the response was, we looked at your financials. It's 1% of your operating budget. And I'm not saying that's a valid statement. I'm not saying that justifies the payment. But if you're an adversary, 
and you're entering into this ransomware negotiation phase, you're you're coming to the table with, with numbers. You're coming to the table with financial statistics and figures, and they're walking through that negotiation process with all this knowledge, knowing they hold the literal encryption keys to the kingdom at that point. That's a tough negotiation to go into and simply say, I'm not paying you, but I want everything that you have. So from a business perspective, it is sometimes a tough pill to swallow, but it happens. And, uh, you know, for some folks that are out there who maybe are sitting inside both camps and have seen the differences between Caesars and MGM and the way that they've unfolded and the way that they've happened in cases like this, it, it, it can set an unfortunate precedent for some organizations. But I would not let anyone use that as a reason not to shore up your defenses, not to mitigate your risks. What I mean by that, and I'll put it bluntly, is please don't sit there and say, eh, if it ever happens, we'll just pay. Who cares? I would look at it and say, you don't want to go through these motions. You don't want to go through this as a company. You don't want to have that discussion with the board. Look at and put in mitigations and defensive measures now so you don't ever have to enter that negotiation process. You don't want to be there. I promise you, even as efficient or quiet as you may be able to make it, you don't want to be at that table no matter what. So with that said, you know, let's use a lot of what we're seeing here as lessons going forward. Yeah, there's one thing for sure, and that's that we will see more ransomware incidents going forward. And I think big high profile ones like this almost become like the head of the hydra that gets cut off and sprouts more. And Chris, you know from this podcast and the times we've talked that one threat group goes away, another four pop up. So it's nothing for a little bit of ransomware to be written and deployed. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this week's special episode. We'll likely be talking about MGM in the future as more details emerge. Next week, we'll be back to our normal updates from the Lima Charlie Community Slack Intel channel, where members of our community share updates on the latest threats. Matt, thanks once again for coming and doing these things with me. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy pulling this stuff apart, and hopefully we're spreading some awareness. As always, Chris, a lot of fun, and a huge thanks to our listeners, and we'll see you next week. All right. Take care. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.